0: Transferred and got a new office during the transfer, in fact it was a brand new office, they had just built it. And uh, he moved in kind of early and got all his desk and stuff set up, and he was sitting there at his desk feeling all important, and he hears a knock on the door, and he quickly he think he feels like, well I've got to, I've got to be impressive. And so he says, uh, just a minute, I'm on the phone. And he reaches over and he very quietly picks his phone up, picks it up to his ear and he says, uh, yes, sir, general. Yes, I'll be sure and call the president first thing. And he hangs up real loud and he says, uh, you may come in now. And in comes this private. And the colonel says, I mean, the, this guy, the captain, or whoever it was, says, uh, <laughs> says uh, yes, sir, uh, private, what can I do for you? and the guy says, well sir, uh, I'm here to install your phone. (laughs) Brand new office. I don't know what he felt like he had to prove and why we often do the same thing. when, Some kind of area of weakness or there's somebody coming along we feel like we need to impress. We'll put up some facade. We'll put on some kind of an act. Or we'll act a certain way around one group of people, another way around another group of people. in order to put on some kind of an air that we've got it all together, okay? And we don't. Nobody has it all together. When we feel insecure or particularly weak in an area, we'll fake it, and we'll try to make other people feel or other people perceive what we would like to believe about ourselves as well, and that is that we don't have any weaknesses. Now, I, honestly, I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this as a pastor because the expectation that are often put in my profession to, to, of expertise in all areas is just about enough to uh, make you go nuts. Uh, you've got to be an expert in Bible, in theology, in preaching, in teaching, and parenting, In counseling, in current events, in evangelism, in marriage, Sunday school, apologetics, church history, church growth, church administration, uh, world missions, prophecy, discipleship, and not to mention, you need to learn Hebrew and Greek as well. And I'll be honest with you, there are some times when people will come up to me and ask me a question in an area of weakness that it's all too tempting to wing it rather than to look them straight in the face and say, I don't know. (laughs) We all are like this, aren't we? Whatever it is, we don't want to appear weak for whatever reason. Because weakness, or having to say you're sorry, or coming across as being wrong, or not that strong in any area, is something that none of us likes to admit. And so we'll, we'll put the cover on. We all struggle with this. And it might be in your marriage that you feel uh, incompetent. It might be in your job that you feel like, man, if these people really ever find out, and I don't know what I'm doing, I won't have a job anymore. Everybody's got feelings of inferiority, and to some degree, even feelings of incompetency in their life. And so I want to talk today about looking at at what the scripture teaches about having, in spite of your weakness, a strength. In fact, even having strength in the weakness. Let's look at this familiar story, Uh, Matthew chapter 14. So if you brought a Bible, open it up there, first book, New Testament, Matthew 14, and we're going to start in verse 14. (coughs) And let me give you a little background of kind of what's happening here. Jesus has presented himself to the nation Israel as the Messiah in Matthew 12 though he figures out they're not gonna accept me. Matthew 13 he begins to change his strategy and he teaches in parables about a new form a temporary form of the kingdom that's going to include the church since Israel's not going to be the main thing now he's going to focus on working through the church and therefore we start in Matthew 14 about one year prior to his crucifixion, Jesus pulls away from public ministry primarily and starts a private ministry focusing on his twelve disciples and preparing them for the, the church, getting them ready to lead the church. And one of the things he teaches them here in this chapter, in fact, if you notice the flow, remember Matthew 12, he realizes what's going to happen. He's got a Changed the plan, Matthew 13, he announces what this change is going to be, and now Matthew 14, one of the first things he teaches his disciples about how to minister in the church, or how to be effective in the church. And I want to tell you, by the way, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only one that all four of them record, I mean, outside of the resurrection But the only miracle that Jesus did in his ministry that all four Gospels uh, record. And so it is important. What is it that is so important that all four want to focus on? What is it that is so important that Jesus, one of the first things he teaches his disciples as the plan switches? What is so important? Well, let's look here. Matthew 14, verse 14. We'll start here. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. This great multitude we're going to see here in a little bit in verse 21 is 5,000 men, and then it says, aside from women and children. So if you figure there's probably about 10,000 conservatively, you could figure about 10,000 people They're gathered in front of Jesus and he feels compassion on them for their sicknesses and he heals their sicknesses but Mark uh, he tells us another reason Jesus had compassion just look at the screen how Mark records this Mark 6 says he felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd it's a nice picture and he began to teach them many things He sees that they have no guidance. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. And because of his compassion, he teaches them God's word. He teaches them many things. Like a shepherd would to to sheep. He takes care of them by teaching them. Alright, so with that in mind, let's continue. Matthew 14, verse 15. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying... The place is desolate, and the time is already past. So send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, when it was time to eat supper, and you were way out in a desolate place like this, or let me back up and say it another way, because that's not often the way it is with us. When it's time for supper, and you haven't planned for supper, what do you do? Well, you drive through McDonald's or something, okay? Okay. We've always got some kind of a quick fix for us in almost all areas of our lives. And food is no no sweat. You forget to cook a meal, you drive in McDonald's. Or you order a pizza on your cell phone. You just handle it with the conveniences of our society. Well, they didn't have that. They didn't have McDonald's. They didn't have cell phones or pizza. If you forgot the meal, you were hungry. And that's what was happening here. The time was late. They'd have a whole full day of Jesus teaching them many things. The hour was getting late. The place was desolate. There was nothing for them to eat around there. And so the disciples, feeling a sense of responsibility to this huge throng of people, comes up to Jesus personally and says, Look, send them away so they can get something to eat. Now, I look at this as a very responsible, a very reasonable request that the disciples gave to Jesus. very responsible thing. And yet God doesn't always look at reason like we do, does he? He's often got different ideas. Which is the case here. Jesus looks at them, verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. You've got 10,000 people or so in a very desolate place. The disciples, to them, reasonable requests. Send them away. Let them fend for themselves. Let them buy food for themselves. Jesus gives an unreasonable request. You feed them with five loaves and two fish. You give them something to eat. And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you provide them something to eat. You come up with something. He says, you give them Something to eat. And they immediately focus on how small their provision was. Five loaves, two fish. In fact, they say, We have, notice, we have only five loaves, two fish. We think Jesus didn't know that. If Jesus is commanding them to do beyond what they have, then they must also have another resource, <coughs> excuse me that is in addition to the five loaves and two fish that they're obviously unaware of. There's got to be something else here that the disciples don't see. All they can see is what they have or really what they don't have. In fact, in another gospel, Andrew is the one that says, look, you know, he finds a little boy and he says, this little boy's got five loaves and two fish. The disciples didn't even have anything. They had to go find the little boy. This little boy has five loaves and two fish. We'll take his lunch. And we'll, and that's all we've got. And Andrew says, "But what is this for so many?" He just says, "You've got to be crazy." And to me, that is the point. Jesus' command was crazy from a human perspective. It was an impossible command. There is absolutely no way that 10,000 people can eat off of five loaves and two fish. Jesus knew the needs of the people. Jesus knew five loaves and two fish weren't going to cut it. And so there must be a supply of food somewhere that the disciples have not found or did not understand that they had. What is this? Well, you know what it is. Look at verse 18. Five loaves and two fish, Jesus said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitude to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they ate; they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children. Why do you think Matthew tells us how many people were there? 5,000 at least, and we know probably more like 10. Why do you think Matthew tells us that there is so many people? He doesn't just call it a multitude now, he gives us a number. Why? I think one reason is to let us know that it doesn't matter how huge the command is. That Jesus is able to meet it. In fact, more than abundantly, there's twelve baskets left over. Even with all these people, Jesus was still able to do it. That's incredible. And I like what it says here, they all ate and were satisfied. It's not just that they all got a bite. They all ate and were satisfied. In fact, the word Matthew uses here was a word that was more often used for cattle that would be fattened on grass to the point where they couldn't eat anymore. They were stuffed, as one of my friends would say. I'm stuffed, is what he always says after a meal. Before a meal he always says, I'm starving. Okay, And I won't say who it is because I don't want to embarrass Dan Melendez. But that, that's the way it is. That's the way Dan bookends every meal, isn't it? I've seen you. Dan, where are you? there you are, there you are. If you go eat with Dan, he'll start the meal by saying, I'm starving. And after the meal, he'll say, I'm stuffed. That's how he he bookends his meals. And that's what happened here. The time began for them. Uh, The time was late. It was time to eat. And they were beginning to be hungry. Jesus provided and provided so amply that afterwards they were stuffed. They were satisfied. Like a cow that can't eat any more grass. And that's pretty satisfied. Because every time I see cows, they're eating grass. They've got quite a capacity. These people were satisfied. Jesus satisfied the need. And he taught them a valuable lesson in this miracle. What he taught them was that he is the source of provision for their ministries. Now remember the flow of what's happening here in Matthew. Matthew. Israel no longer is going to be the primary thing. Now it's going to be the church. He's teaching the twelve how to, man- how to minister in the church. And what does he teach them? That impossible commands are going to be given. You're not going to have the resources to handle it. What do you do? Well, you don't focus on the inadequacy of your resources. You bring them to Jesus. He multiplies it and makes it adequate. You think... They learned this lesson by having to make trip after trip after trip to Jesus. You know, 10,000 people, you divide that by 12 disciples, that means that they carried 833 meals each. They probably didn't do that all at once. You know, you've got your 833 people over here. All right, load me up. Let's go. No, you couldn't carry that much bread and fish. You'd take a little you'd come back and get more. You'd take a little, you'd come back and get more. And what do you think the disciples were learning? Every time they would take and they would give, just like Jesus said, you give them something to you. That's what they were doing. Doing just what they commanded. Jesus didn't say, you come up with it. He just said, you give it. I'll come up with it. What did they learn? That you don't get... Provided for in one fell swoop for the rest of your life, for the rest of your ministry, for the rest of the time that you are a believer here on earth. But rather, you've got to go out and serve and come back to Jesus for more. Go out and serve and come back to Jesus for more. And what happens if you go out and serve but you fail to come back to Jesus? You've got nothing to give. You run out. You've got to continually come back. To Jesus. And the text, we're not going to go on, but Matthew tells us, starting in verse 22, that immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go on across the lake, and he would follow later. And so they get in a boat and they go across the lake, and you know the story. The wind and the waves start, and Jesus goes out to them walking on the water. And they see Jesus walking on the water, this person coming towards them, and they all freak out and they go, Look, it's a ghost! A ghost. I found it interesting a few weeks ago. Uh, I read, and this, this is just tickled me pink. Israel's National Parks Authority authorized a contractor to build a bridge in the Sea of Galilee. A bridge that would be just about a half an inch under the water. That would go out about a hundred yards and would support about 50 tourists. They could go from the land and they could walk on the water out just like Jesus did. Of course, it'll cost you $29.95 to do what Jesus did. But to me, what was funny, though, was that they said that they would also have lifeguards on duty just in case it slipped off the edge. <laughs> you can imagine that, have lifeguard Just in case you want to really try it, we'll have lifeguards here for you. But if they wanted to make it really authentic, what they'd have to do is also somehow drum up a storm and to have 12 guys in a boat coming by you uh, at the same time, pointing at you and calling you a ghost. That would make it authentic. You know, I looked, I searched with my little computer thing, and there is no other spot in the entire Bible where the word ghost is even used, except right here. Matthew and Mark both use it. And in the New Testament, the Greek word they use for ghost, it's only used here. In fact, we get our word phantom from it. It's only used here. And why is that significant? To me, that's significant because not a lot of people were worried about running around seeing ghosts because you don't see it anywhere in here. Except here. And that's amazing to me because the disciples were more willing to say when they saw this person coming, it's a ghost, than they were to say, that's got to be the miracle-working Christ who just a few hours ago took five loaves and two fish and fed a throng of people. They were more willing to believe in something crazy like a ghost, which nobody else in the Bible talks about, than they were to believe it was Jesus. And of course, Jesus tells them, no, it's me. It's not a ghost. And he gets into the boat And I want you to listen. Let me read to you how Mark records what happened. He got into the boat with them. The wind stopped. They were astonished. And then he says, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Isn't that sad? What a wonderful miracle to sit there and watch what Jesus did and they didn't learn a thing. They didn't learn in the miracle working power of Jesus Christ. They saw it and they said, it's a ghost. They hadn't learned a thing. And if they did, they didn't transfer into other areas of life. And by the way, we'll do the same thing. Have you ever read through the stories of the Bible? You know, you read the Red Sea crossing and you think, how could those people have crossed through the Red Sea like they did and then just right or that start whining about wanting to go back to Egypt because God couldn't take care of them? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder why the disciples, after seeing all these miracles that Jesus did, appeared to be such half-wits in, in some areas? You say, how could they see such miracles of God and yet have such a little faith? You know the answer to that? The same way you and I do. There is probably not a few of us here who have, who have not experienced the power of God in our lives in some manner, be it through salvation and converting a sinner into a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, be it through physical needs being met, be it through emotional strength to go through what you never thought you could go through, and yet here you are, looking back, the wiser for it. And I like what he, what he says. Uh, I think it's in chapter 15. He gives them another test now. And notice, it's the same thing. Well, it's not the same thing, but it's similar. In chapter 14, you've got the feeding of the 5,000, it's called. And in chapter 15, you've got the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus says, let's try this again and see if you guys get it. And so you've got the same kind of scenario. Chapter 15, you look about verse 32, verse 33. Jesus has compassion again, again, for this huge crowd. He says, let's give them something to eat. I don't want them to go away hungry. What did the disciples say? The disciples don't say, hey, we've been here before. Let's take these few loaves and fish and give them to Jesus and he'll multiply them. They didn't say that. What did they say? Look at verse 33. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? They hadn't learned from the first time. That Jesus is able to provide. And then in chapter 16, you think they'd learned it now? Chapter 16. They forgot to take bread with them on their journey. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think, oh, he means don't buy bread from the Pharisees. Jesus says, no, I don't mean don't buy bread from the Pharisees. He's speaking of, watch out for the teaching of the Pharisees. But then he makes this statement here in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9. He says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? Not, yeah, I the five loaves of five. And how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? What a question to ask them. It says, don't you even remember those couple of miracles I did? And don't you even understand? And so why is it after all that God's done in our lives and we can all look back and think about things God's done in our lives that when something new comes up A situation that we think, oh, this is different. Oh, no, what am I going to do? Oh, God, where are you? That you can almost hear Jesus say, do you not yet understand or remember what I did for you back in 1971? Can't you remember what I did for you two or three weeks ago? Kathy and I try to do something that's... We're not real consistent with it, so I'll admit to you there, right up front. But something we like to try to do when we remember or understand is to take what we call matchbox blessings. And this was a great idea I got from somebody else. That is, you take a matchbox. Actually, we don't use matchboxes. We use a computer. But you take a matchbox, if you wanted to try it, and you put, you empty all the matches out and you put on it 1999. You can start it this year. You set it in the closet. And every time some, some, God blesses you in some way this year, you write it down on a little piece of paper and you stick it in that box. That way in 35 years when you think the, that God has abandoned you and you're going through something terrible, you can look back over the last 35 years, you can pull out box 1999 and you can look and you can see that God was faithful to you that year. Otherwise we'll forget. What he's done. Forget what God has done, and even when we remember, sometimes we don't understand. He, that's what Jesus asks, "Don't you understand or remember?" It's not just you can remember what I've done. Don't you understand what it's taught you? And this is why I think sometimes the Lord allows us to continue to struggle with the same things <clears throat> over and over and over and over and over again in our lives because we haven't learned what He's trying to teach us in that particular scenario. There was a lady that uh, died last year, Kathy and I were real close to, and she always had a great saying for a trial. She said, or a prayer actually, she would pray, Lord, help me to learn it. Whatever you're wanting me to learn during this time, help me to learn it the first time so I don't have to go through this again. And we always clung to that as a great little bit of wisdom to pray when you're going through something that you feel like is so unique and the first time to pray, God, help me, whatever it is I'm supposed to learn so I don't have to go through this again. As far as teaching. And after Jesus' resurrection, he came to Peter and he said to him, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. Or the NIV says, Feed my lambs. And then the next verse he tells Peter, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus made it clear to Peter before Jesus ascended, right before the church was about to officially start with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that your love for Christ and your compassion for people, you would feed Christ's sheep. Now, how did Christ feed the sheep? You Think back to the feeding of the 5,000, but remember what Mark said? He looked at the people with compassion like sheep without a shepherd, and what did he do? He taught them the Word of God. He taught them many things. I think that what Jesus is telling Peter here in John 21 is you love me then you teach people the word of God so it's no surprise then when Peter writes uh, in his very first epistle when he's writing to those who serve in ministry he says shepherd the flock among you I think he's talking about what Jesus said when Jesus told him shepherd my sheep feed my sheep this is a great message and application for you to use if you are one who serves in any capacity in serving God in some way, in any way, small or big in your mind this is a great thing to learn and to not forget, to learn and to understand God often will give us impossible commands, any impossible commands that you're having to deal with right now, if you're married I know a couple of good ones Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? That's impossible. True. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord? Ha <laughs> That's impossible. It's true. Children, obey your parents and the Lord? That's impossible. Make disciples of all nations? All nations? Okay, Lord, did I hear you right? All nations? That's impossible. That's right. We are given impossible tasks. And I think that the Lord will often set us in these kind of circumstances, not so that he can watch us squirm and, and hurt at our inability. but the, So we will be convinced of something that we wouldn't be convinced of any other way. And that is, we need him to do what he's commanded us to do. Because if we're honest, all we have are a few fish and loaves to feed thousands. And we must come to him. So how can we find strength and weakness? Our passage has given us a couple of great applications. And the first of that, which we'll say, is that our task is bigger than us, but smaller than God. How do we know that? Well, because there was more left over than when they started. We have only five loaves and two fish. Our task is bigger than us. What was left over? Twelve full baskets, but it's smaller than God task is bigger than us, but it's smaller than God. I don't care what the command is, to live a holy life for sinful human beings is an impossible command, humanly speaking. Our task is bigger than us, but it's smaller than God. He can provide what is necessary for us to do that which is commanded. When we rely on our own resources, we'll fall. And I think that Prince of Egypt song is a great, I really love what that song talks about. I'm surprised that, uh, well, in the context of a quasi-biblical movie that I guess it makes sense to have it there. But um, I guess that the song is so good, that's what surprises me, and that a couple of great artists would perform it and that it would have some kind of notoriety. But the life of Moses is a great example of this kind of inferiority. To which God used an incredible strength. The Bible tells us that Moses went out and he looked at his people. He went out to visit his people when he was about 40 years old. Saw an Egyptian beaten up on a Jew. And he went and he killed the Egyptian, hit him in the sand. And the next day he saw two Jews beating up on each other. And he went to the guy who was the bully and he says, Hey, why are you doing this to your brother? And he says, What, are you going to kill me like you killed this other guy? Moses figured out he'd been discovered and he fled. And you know what, hap- what that illustrates there? Moses, in Acts, uh, Stephen tells us that Moses was very well educated, and was very powerful in speech, he was very self-assertive, self-confident, therefore he was self-deceived. He thought that the nation would understand that he came to deliver them, but they didn't understand. And what did that lead to? Self-defeat. Self-confidence apart from God always leads to self-defeat. And yet what happened 40 years later when he came back at the burning bush and all that, God told him, I want you now to come and deliver my people. What did Moses say? You bet, I'm the man. Nope. There wasn't any more self-confidence at this point. What did he say? He said, God choose somebody else. I've never been able to speak very well, he tells God. He was ready. He realized that he was inadequate and that it had to be the power of God. What did Peter tell Jesus? Any self confidence in this statement? Lord, I will never deny you. What did Peter do that very night three times? Denied him. I think it's interesting. You know why the, the uh, rooster is up on the weather vane? You ever know the origin of that? <clears throat> Some pope, I think, in the ninth century commanded that all weather vanes have roosters put on the top so the people would remember peter and that every morning as they looked up to see which way the wind was blowing they'd remember peter's denial kind of an impressive thing i think to remember a failure as opposed to a uh, success but that's what peter did his self-confidence led to self-defeat and yet peter's another great example what happened after that he turned around and because he realized he was inadequate The Holy Spirit used this fisherman to do incredible things. In fact, it's funny, Peter and John were called uneducated men. And uh, the Greek word there for uneducated is idiotes. Guess which word we get from that? (laughs) Idiot. These guys are idiots. Where did they get? They're uneducated. Where did they get this power? They looked at these people who were just normal Joes And they said, where did they get this power? I'll tell you. They realized their inadequacies and God used them in spite of that. They gave their fish and loaves. Our task is bigger than us, yes, but it's smaller than God. And finally, I want to tell you that your weakness in serving isn't as important as your willingness to serve. Let's look at verse 19 and 20 again of our passage. They took the loaves and the fish. He took the loaves and the fish. He blessed the food. He gave to the disciples. The disciples gave to the multitudes. They all ate and were satisfied. Twelve full baskets left over. That's our example. Now look at the application that comes from this. Line for line. It's, it's incredible the way Matthew's laid this out. He took the, fish, the loaves and the fish, the inadequate resources. He blessed the food when given to and blessed by Christ he gave to the disciples are returned multiplied the disciples gave to the multitudes they were satisfied adequate to fulfill the impossible command twelve baskets left over in fact more than adequate so reading the application from our example the inadequate resources when given to and blessed by Christ are returned multiplied and are adequate to fulfill the impossible command in fact they're more than adequate and I wish I had a nickel For every time, John Krim has come up to me after a service with his big old low voice. He comes up to me and says, Young feller. And then he goes like this. He goes over his heart like there's been an arrow stuck in his heart and goes, It's like you've been reading my mail. And I'll tell him, John, God's been reading your mail. God knows all about you and be it Brian, be it David, be it me, be it anybody else that ever stands up here and delivers the word of God, we are simply waiters working for cook Jesus. He is the one that provides. We offer our meager fish and loaves and he takes it, he multiplies it, he knows your need individually. And so something I say is going to trigger something. I've had people come up to me and say, you know what, when you said this it really ministered to me and I never said that. (laughs) What an incredible thing. So humbling. You know, well, thank you, I guess, you know. (laughs) God uses the fish and loaves to satisfy whatever the need happens to be. So whatever ministry you may be in or you may feel like, hey, I don't have enough to get involved in a ministry. Jeremiah tried that one on God. Jeremiah said, "I'm too young and I'm inexperienced." And what did God say to Jeremiah? "Don't tell me that you're too young." You may say, "Well, wait, I'm just a, a homemaker. I'm just a housewife. What can I do for the kingdom of God?" Or, "I'm just a plumber. What can I do to teach the Bible?" What does God say? "Don't tell me you're a plumber." He told Jeremiah, "I'll put my words in your mouth." He does it through me. <clears throat> he spoke through a donkey with Balaam. He can speak through Wayne Stiles and the donkey. Hey, you're in good company. If you feel inadequate, God can use you. Your weakness in serving is not the issue. Your issue is, are you willing to serve, to serve the Lord? What's God called you to do for him? Do it. Don't get hung up on what you can't do. Don't try to disguise your weaknesses. Our weaknesses are of no consequence to the strength of Almighty God. It's your willingness that's important. Hi, this is Wayne Stiles. You can receive a weekly devotional by email by subscribing to my blog at waynestyles.com. There you'll also find resources for devotional and Bible Land study, as well as a way for us to connect via Facebook and Twitter. There's even an opportunity to support this weekly podcast with a donation. That's WayneStyles.com. Thanks for listening.